Good morning again, everyone. Good morning. So I've had an interesting week, as uh, some of you are already aware. Um, on Wednesday, I was feeling a little tireder than usual. Um, didn't think too much of it until I got up on Thursday, um, and it's when the fever began. Um, and so I had a very interesting rest of the week after that, but um, for whatever reason, my wife would probably just say it's stubbornness, um, I just kept charging forward, getting ready for Sunday, because I knew, you know, I was going to be fine by then, and if, you know, if I'm good enough to, to show up, I'm good enough to preach, I'll be, I'll be fine. And so I just kept, continued on as normal. Um, yesterday morning, I uh, woke up, and it had all decided to move to my chest, <laughs> and coughing a lot, didn't have much of a voice, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to make some adjustments here. So I uh, came in and I sort of figured out, okay, I need to sort of re-edit all of this material to, uh, to get things a little bit more condensed, because I might not have a much voice on Sunday morning. And so I started looking over all the stuff that I wrote on Thursday and Friday um, with quite a fever. Um, it was interesting, some of the things that I thought made sense um, in that state that I looked at and was like, wow, what does that sentence even mean? And that, that one isn't even a sentence. I don't even know what that is. It's some combination of words and letters that is, was, I'm sure meant something to me on Thursday, but it, it doesn't really look like anything now. And there were a few times where I had what I thought was a pretty logical progression of thought, and then out of nowhere, it was like, well, that seems like just the opposite of what I should be saying at this point. This just doesn't make sense. And so as I was thinking about that um, yesterday, as I was trying to rework all of this stuff into to something that would make some sense, I realized, you know, that's kind of how things got left last week. If you remember the scripture reading that we had last week, in Matthew 16, the passage right before the one that was just read, you know, we talked about this amazing scene, this exchange between Peter and Jesus, where this, this foundational truth, this great declaration, the foundation upon which everything else was going to be built, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The fact that Jesus was king, and last week we talked about how this is, this is bedrock, this is foundation of everything that we do. This kingship of Jesus, this lordship of Jesus that makes his identity just all-encompassing. It makes it change everything in our lives. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a historical figure. He's even not just a savior that helps us out when we need him. But he is lord and king, and that changes everything. And as important as that is, there was, you know, and I admitted in the lesson that there was so much in this exchange that we could do a whole series of lessons on it, but I just wanted to focus on that one core fundamental truth. But one verse that was in the reading last week that I just didn't even mention at all in the lesson, I wondered if anyone would ask me about it, having not brought that up at all. Um, but in verse 20, right before today's reading, he says, Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What in the world? <laughs> the most important, foundational, earth-shattering thing that could ever be declared. This foundational truth. I'm sure it, a lot of those disciples that heard Jesus say this felt like, okay, Jesus must have fallen ill here because this all made sense up to that point. 
This is the most important fact, the most important truth that reshapes and changes all of history. But then he says to his disciples, now don't tell anybody about it. You see, there were these assumptions, these expectations about what the Messiah was going to be. But Jesus, while they did understand, they did see that he was the Messiah, this anointed king of Israel and really king of the universe, Jesus still had the hard work of showing them what kind of king was going to reign in God's kingdom. See, there was a time earlier, right after the feeding of the 5,000, happened a few chapters back in Matthew, but in John's account, something interesting happens. At the end of that account, Jesus, it doesn't just say that he goes away, you know, privately afterwards before the whole scene of the walking on water. No, he says he draws away from these crowds who we just performed this great miracle before because he knew that they were going to take him and make him king by force. After seeing this power of God working through them, after giving them more than they could have ever imagined, they were ready to take Jesus and make him king. And you would think, well, yes, he is king. That's, that seems right. But Jesus withdrew from them. He moved away because they were going to make him the wrong kind of king. It would have been a disaster for the world, for these crowds, to make Jesus the kind of king that they thought should be reigning, wanting to join themselves to this wrong kind of kingdom. Because we all have a lot of ideas about how a king should come into his kingdom. I mean, just imagine a king. You know, pretend we're not talking about Jesus as king this whole time. Pretend you can get that whole setup. But just just this generic image, just this general impression of what a king looks like to you. And then think about how that king should enter into his kingdom. The the majesty, the 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 ceremony, the the ostentatiousness of it all. You know, coming in on this great war horse instead of entering, you know, on a young donkey the way Jesus did. All the ideas about the power and the might and the glory and majesty that a king should have as he takes possession of his kingdom. Well, all those ideas come very naturally to us. What if the people had tried to take Jesus and make him that kind of king, with all those assumptions they would naturally have about what a king should look like. What could possibly go wrong, right? So, right after this declaration that, yes, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed king, things take a very dramatic turn. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Sounds good so far. And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That must have sounded so bizarre to his followers. This acknowledgement, this understanding that yes, he is king, and he says, yes, and now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, not to be anointed, not to be crowned, Not to come in victoriously, but I'm going to come in to suffer and to die. That must have been a real sort of a a through the looking glass moment for his disciples. If any of you have read, 
you know, the book, you know, Alice's, I think, Adventures Through the Looking Glass, the, the follow-up to, to Alice in Wonderland. And towards the beginning of the book, it, it takes a while for Alice to reorient herself to this backwards world she's found herself in. And, and as she, she leaves the house that, that she entered the world through, um, she sees this hill in the distance, and so, of course, as she's trying to get to it, she thinks, oh, well, that's where I'm headed, so that's where I'm going to go. And she finds that no matter how hard she tries to go towards her goal, she always ends up back where she started. And, and the more aggressively she pursues trying to get to that goal, she ends up just turning a corner and running right back into the house that she was trying to leave from. You see, based on everything that she knew about the way the world should work, there's the goal, you should be walking toward it, but not in this backwards-looking glass world. She instead had to start moving in the opposite direction of the way she, that was apparent to go in order to actually get to her goal. And I'm sure that must be how these disciples must have felt. It's like, wait, okay, so you're the king. You're going to reign over Israel and over all creation. And so the way you're going to get there is by suffering at the hands of those who already have authority now and being killed by them. There's very little about that that makes sense on its surface. And so, of course, Peter speaks up. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Never, Lord. Some translations even render it more strongly. God forbid it, Lord. This can never happen. This makes no sense. You are the king. You're the Messiah. For you to suffer and to die, that's just not right. See, even Peter, who understood Jesus to be king, had a misunderstanding or at least an incomplete understanding of what that king should look like. See, how could this Jesus as Messiah align with Jesus as the suffering servant? This human perspective and this God perspective, they just came into a full clash in that moment in Peter's mind. But then things really kind of turn a corner when we get to verse 24. See, in verse 23... Jesus reminds Peter, say, like, you are not looking at things from a godly perspective. You are looking at this from a human perspective as far as what I should be as a king. But it's going to be very easy for you to do the same thing when it comes to what it means to live in this kingdom, to be my follower, to be my disciple. So he says, okay, this is a whole new perspective. This is a whole new reality that you were not really prepared for, that you were not really expecting. But now you don't just have to accept this new reality, but you have to live it. You have to participate in it with me. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. And truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. You see, if the human perspective of what it means to be king is so different than God's perspective of how that king would enter into his kingdom, 
We should expect that life in this kingdom would run counter to our expectations as well. We have to take up our cross. We have to deny ourselves. You see, I have to deny those things that would define me according to the world's terms, just as Jesus denied those expectations of who the world thought he should be as king. You know, what happens when my primary self-identification becomes cross-bearer? Follower of the king who suffered and died to usher in his kingdom. When the core nature of my discipleship, my followership, my citizenship in the kingdom is that I'm going to bear a cross just as Christ did. That I will be willing to suffer and die for the kingdom and for the world that God loves. What does my life look like when I truly follow the king whose path to glory led right through suffering and death. I can't help but think that it looks a lot like what Paul describes in in, in Romans 12. At the beginning of that chapter, he talks about offering ourselves as, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. A little bit later in that chapter, in in verse 9, I think he gives a good indication of what that life looks like. Life as sacrifice. Discipleship as sacrifice. And it's really defined in terms of love. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, but patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And do not overcome Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This example of what it means to be a living sacrifice, it looks a lot like the example that Jesus gave gave us as he was willing to suffer with us, as he was willing to come and have that sacrificial love. Yes, this description is full of suffering, but it's also full of hope. It's hope that can persevere despite trouble. It looks a lot like the love that's expressed on the cross. Love must be sincere. That reminds me of the example of Jesus' sacrifice. And there's this idea in here of vengeance. When it says, don't take revenge, leave room for God's wrath. And I think it's interesting that's in there when we think about our, the way we would take vengeance and then this idea of the wrath of God. You see, see I think our wrath and vengeance... Well, we tend to get it all wrong. See, we want to harm or destroy the one who's brought harm to us. 
But you see, God's problem is not so much with his creation, but with the sin and brokenness and death that inhabits it. See, God is more in the habit of dealing harshly with sin in order to make his enemies into his friends. His love for his creation is so great that one of the very few statements that we, that we hear, that we have recorded from Jesus on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even as they're putting him to death, he's asking for their forgiveness. So we, if we're going to follow his example, if we are going to the of this kingdom, if we're going to live that kind of life, of sacrificial love. We have to aspire to live like a king. But you see, not just any king. Normally when we think about living like a king, well, we think about wealth and comfort and ease. But no, we should live like a king who set aside his crown and set aside his glory in order to enter into the struggle of his people. You see, in Jesus, we're given an example of love that doesn't just banish suffering, but instead descends into our suffering with us. He's not a king who delivers orders from afar, but instead a king who stands side by side with us. It was hard for Peter and his companions to understand the Messiah's role as a road that leads through suffering. I understand a kingship that's robed in sacrifice. And it can be hard for us to understand our role in those terms as well. But the deeper that we go into shaping our lives according to the pattern of Jesus, the more we let our lives be cross-shaped lives, the more it becomes clear that our lives aren't just being reoriented heavenward, but also outward toward a world that's hurting. See, we don't just map out this path to glory for ourselves. We don't just see, oh, here's the goal that I want, and I'm going to take my straight line to glory and blessedness and, and the riches and the mansion robe and a crown is in one of the songs that we sometimes sing. Yes, that is our destination. But you see, the way we get there looks a little different. We follow a trail that's been blazed by our king, a path of love and a path of sacrifice. You see, this world needs the love of God to be expressed through all of us who call ourselves his disciples. And because of that love, see, we go where others don't want to go. We say no to ourselves in order to say yes to the kingdom of God. And when we speak to the world, we say more than come here to the church to find relief for your suffering. We say something more than that. We say, we, the church, stand with you in your suffering, that the Lord would heal us together. Being redeemed makes me an agent of redemption. And I follow a king who suffered for me, so I'm ready to suffer for you and with you. What if our identity in the world, what if the way people saw us was more than just those people who believe in Jesus? And what if that shifted to, those are those people who walked with us through our struggle to bring us into their Lord's kingdom? What if they saw us as those who experienced our sorrow with us to bring us into their joy? If we're not ready to walk that road, if we're not ready to walk a road of sacrifice and of suffering and of struggle, 
with those that are around us, well, then we're not really ready to follow the way of Jesus. But that easier road that we'd be tempted to follow, that road of self-preservation, it doesn't really lead us to life. It doesn't really lead us to where we think it would. That road that looks like it leads to life actually leads us to death. You see, to live only in the flesh means to die. But to die to the flesh means to really live because it means to live not our lives, not these frail human things, but it means to live the life of our King, a life that's imperishable, a life that will never end, and a life that comes through that sacrificial love and serving others to bring them in to His kingdom. To bring people into glory, not through that straight line, obvious seeming path straight to glory, but a path that leads through the suffering that we find in this world. Because that's where love is really shown. If you're here this morning and you know that He's your King, and you're ready to join with Him in His path of sacrifice, you're ready to live the kind of life He lived, to follow His example in loving the world and being willing to suffer even on their behalf. If you know that you need His love, the love that He showed for you as He suffered and died upon the cross so that you could enter into His kingdom along with Him. If you want to take part in that this morning, if you're ready to make your declaration that He is going to be your King and you're going to take up your cross and follow Him, we'd love to help you do that this morning. If you're ready to be baptized into His name to enter into that kingdom, we'd love to help you with that this morning. Or if you just want to know more about what it means to be His disciple, who this Jesus is that was willing to suffer for you. If you're here this morning and you just need the prayers of this church, and for some reason you've left that path, you know that you need to get back into the way of Jesus and you've, you've strayed away and you need this family to surround you, to even come down into your suffering with you as Christ did for us so that we could lift you back up to him together. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning as a church, please come and let us know as we stand.